So human kingship, Payne argues, diverts man from the worship of God, and it is wrong, Payne insists, to revere a mortal man. As he puts it, How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to a worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 78. Thomas Paine, Yerubal, and the concept of kingship. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. I begin today with the wonderful book about the American Revolution, Angel in the Whirlwind, which describes what happened in New York on July 9th, 1776, after George Washington ordered the Declaration of Independence read aloud in the streets. Quote, That evening, New Yorkers toppled the lead equestrian statue of King George III, erected after repeal of the Stamp Act from its pedestal on Bowling Green. Eventually, its metal would be melted down and molded into 42,000 cartridges for Patriot guns. As one New York Patriot put it, the King of England statue here has been pulled down to make musket ball of, so that the King's own troops will probably have melted majesty fired at them. Citizens in Baltimore, Savannah, and elsewhere likewise burned or buried the King in effigy and tore from their hinges all signs bearing the royal arms. In Worcester, Massachusetts, thirsty patriots repaired to a local tavern and offered toasts to the prosperity of the United States and a dozen other things, including perpetual itching without benefit of scratching to the enemies of America. That Sunday, Bishop William White, the Patriot Rector of Christ Church in Philadelphia, omitted the usual prayers offered for the king, and one year later, as a sign that God's imprimatur was now stamped upon his sermons, a bolt of lightning struck and shattered the royal crown of England affixed to the top of the spire, end quote. When we tell the story of the American Revolution, it is often depicted as a rebellion in a war against the King of England. But originally, the colonists, in resisting the taxes placed upon them by Britain, saw themselves as opposing Parliament, not the King. It was taxation without representation that they hated, at first, not their monarch. The statue at Bowling Green that was melted down had actually been erected by the colonists only several years before in honor of the repealing of the Stamp Act, out of gratitude to the king. But later, the colonists came not only to rebel against England, but to reject the very idea of monarchy. What a change in so small a period of time. The answer lies, at least in part, with a man by the name of Thomas Paine, the most important polemicist in the history of the United States, and perhaps the world. A ne'er-do-well Englishman and a failure at the age of 37, Payne left England for America in 1774 and immediately threw himself into the arguments against Britain. It was in January of 1776 that his pamphlet Common Sense was published, originally anonymously. Common Sense sold like wildfire, over 100,000 copies, and it put forward not only a case for revolution, but also an argument for why monarchy was itself a sin. It was Paine, perhaps more than anyone else, who helped change the way Americans thought about whether monarchy is part of the natural order. The argument that Paine advances in the second section of Common Sense is biblical, theological, and one of his central sources comes from the book of Judges. We saw in our last session how Gideon was called to destroy the altar of the pagan god Baal and to lead Israel to victory over Midian. But we also saw how some Israelites did not rally to his call, and how he violently exacted vengeance against them. Following his victory, Gideon's compatriots asked to make him king, but he refuses. Chapter 8, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, 
rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Gideon's refusing of the position is, in other words, theological. He believes that monarchy comes close to idolatry, that it diverts reverence from God. It is Gideon's words that Paine cited in common sense. Paine insisted not only that America should rebel against Britain, but that all monarchical systems are a sin. And one of his central citations is from our story. Paine writes as follows, quote, The children of Israel being oppressed by the Midianites, Gideon marched against them with a small army, and victory through the divine interposition decided in his favor. The Jews, elate with success and attributing it to the generalship of Gideon, proposed making him a king, saying, Rule thou over us, thou and thy son and thy son's son. Here was temptation in its fullest extent, not a kingdom only, but an hereditary one. But Gideon, in the piety of his soul, replied, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Words need not be more explicit. Gideon doth not decline the honor, but denieth their right to give it. Neither doth he compliment them with invented declarations of his thanks, but in the positive style of a prophet, charges them with disaffection to their proper sovereign, the king of heaven." So human kingship, Paine argues, diverts man from the worship of God, and it is wrong, Paine insists, to revere a mortal man. As he puts it, How impious is the title of sacred majesty applied to a worm, who in the midst of his splendor is crumbling into dust. This is Paine's argument, and it is based, in part, on judges. But Paine does not discuss what happens next in this biblical book. Gideon collects gold from Israel and makes himself an aphod, an apron, akin to that worn by the high priest. And that, in turn, becomes an idol. Verse 27. And Gideon made an aphod of this and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. And all Israel went astray there after it, which thing became a snare to Gideon and to his house. The Bible, thus perhaps, may be reminding us that if human beings do not have a leader to revere, they may turn their urges elsewhere. This, then, is Gideon's legacy, and it is worth noting the other name by which he is known. Yerubal, one who strives against the pagan god Baal. Fascinatingly, an actual piece of pottery with the inscription Yerubal was recently found in Israel, dating to the period of the judges. And the fact that Yerubal is how Gideon is known is perhaps significant as we evaluate both his achievements and his failures. John Adams once said of Thomas Paine, that Paine was much better at tearing down than building up, meaning that Paine's eloquence was influential in overthrowing Britain. But his own notions of what America should do after the revolution were fundamentally misguided. Gideon begins his career tearing down the altar of Baal, and for that he is known, as well as for tearing down Israel's enemies. But as a uniter of Israel, as one who was able to build up Israel, Gideon clearly fails. And this is reflected as well in what occurs after Gideon's death. After 40 years of Gideon's protectorship, he leaves 70 sons. One of them, Avimelech, murders almost all of his brothers and then declares himself monarch. As Israelites gather in Shechem to coronate him, the one surviving brother, Yotam, stands from afar and cries out to those assembled, one of the most famous political parables in the Bible. Chapter 9, verse 8. The trees went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Should I leave my fatness? with which by me they honor God and man and go to hold sway over the trees. And the trees said to the fig tree, Come thou and reign over us. 
But the fig tree said to them, Should I forsake my sweetness and my good fruit and go to hold sway over the trees? Then said the trees to the vine, Come thou and reign over us. And the vine said to them, Should I leave my wine, which cheers God and man, and go to hold sway over the trees? Then said all the trees to the bramble, Come thou and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in truth you anoint me king over you, then come and put your trust in my shadow, and if not, fire will issue from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. This is Yotam's parable. Every tree refuses to become the leader, and then only a bramble, which is so easily set on fire and which produces nothing, ends up leading. The point of Yotam seems to be that when more able leaders refuse the position of leadership, then the post will devolve disastrously to those unworthy, and in the end, only anarchy will result. Implicitly, Yotam may be saying that because his father Gideon refused to become king and to install a more worthy heir, Israel now faces the disaster of Avimelech. And so he says in verse 19, If you then have dealt truly and sincerely with Yerubal and with his house this day, then rejoice in Avimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, fire will come out from Avimelech and devour the men of Shechem and the house of Milo, and fire will come out from the men of Shechem and from the house of Milo and devour Avimelech. So Yotam predicts, and this is exactly what occurs, a rebellion breaks out against Avimelech, and Avimelech wages war against it. In the process, Avimelech uses fire to burn a thousand rebels to death, men and women. A terrible and eerily accurate fulfillment of Yotam's prediction. Avimelech in the end is defeated when he attempts to also burn down a tower in another city, rebelling against him. Judges 9.52 And Avimelech came to the tower to burn it with fire, and a woman cast an upper millstone upon Avimelech's head and crushed his skull. Avimelech mortally injured asked his armor-bearer to end his life, and the tale concludes in verse 56, Thus God made reparation for the wickedness of Avimelech which he did to his father in slaying his seventy brothers. And all the evil of the men of Shechem did God requite upon their heads. And upon them came the curse of Yotam, the son of Yerubal. All of these details, of course, are left out by Thomas Paine, who fails to inform his readers what ultimately occurs to the son of Gideon that seized the throne after Gideon refused to rule. So what are we to make of this story? What in the end is its lesson? Is monarchy ultimately what is destined for Israel? On the one hand, the book of Judges will later ascribe the anarchy about which we are reading to the lack of just such a ruler, telling us that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The implication is that monarchy can unite the people. On the other hand, Scripture will also emphasize the point first made by Gideon, that monarchy is dangerous because it could allow Israel to revere a human being and to thereby forget its true divine ruler. The rabbis of the Talmud will themselves debate whether biblical Israel is supposed to ultimately establish a monarchy. And we will return to this matter when we learn of the truly excellent king in the Bible, which is, of course, David. But as Harvard's Eric Nelson has shown in his incredible book, The Hebrew Republic, the biblical verses and the Talmudic disagreement about them made its way into the political arguments of the 17th century as Protestant theologians debated which government was the ideal. And because these theologians could not reference Catholic tradition, they turned instead to the Talmud in order to strengthen their positions. Thus, the biblical and rabbinic arguments against monarchy were utilized, as Nelson shows, by John Milton, 
who was later famous for his Paradise Lost, but who before the restoration of the Stuart dynasty was one of the most ardent political polemicists and defenders of the British Republic. Milton cited the Bible and the Talmud in arguing against kingship, and it was from Milton that Thomas Paine, in the next century, took the idea for his argument. Thomas Paine himself was not at all religious and did not really respect the Bible, but he knew that Americans were devout, and so he lifted the biblical anti-monarchist argument from Milton. As Nelson points out, this was made clear by John Adams. Adams was one of the most influential people in the story of the Revolution, but he did not believe that monarchy everywhere was a sin, rather that each country needed the system to which it was most suited. Adams, therefore, decided to tell Paine what he thought about common sense, and was shocked to hear from Paine that Paine didn't really believe in Scripture at all. Adams writes, quote, I told him further that his reasoning from the Old Testament was ridiculous, and I could hardly think him sincere. At this he laughed and said he had taken his ideas in that part from Milton, and then expressed a contempt of the Old Testament, and indeed of the Bible at large, which surprised me, end quote. Paine would in the end make his own views about religion known in a very different book, The Age of Reason, and that in turn would help hurt Paine's reputation in a very religious America. The story of Paine, as documented by Eric Nelson, is not only a tale of a gifted polemicist, but also, and indeed much more importantly, about the origins of the United States, for again, it is the Bible that played an incredible role in America's origins, in influencing the Americans themselves, who derived political arguments from the Hebrew scripture that they so revered. And while the biblical view on monarchy is debated by the rabbis, what is clear from the Bible, and what was incredibly clear to the early Americans, is this. Ultimately, whatever political system is set up, it is only when God is revered that a polity can succeed. Gideon was correct that the people must always see that God is the true king, and that in turn ought to inspire our reflections on whether our polity at the present moment truly reveres God as king. I close, therefore, with the final verses of the song titled America, by which I mean not the Simon and Garfunkel song America, but rather the much older one, largely known today as My Country Tis of Thee. It was set to the tune of the British National Anthem, and deliberately so, because Americans, instead of singing God Save Our Gracious Queen or God Save Our Gracious King, intended to emphasize that it was God who was the true ruler of America. I will attempt to sing the final stanza, with apologies in advance, to all of my listeners. Our fathers, God, to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God our King. This is Mayor Soloveitchik, looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.